Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everyone, welcome to the Heart Over Hype podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Shamar Charles. This podcast focuses on the goal of providing unique and culturally sensitive perspectives on physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health and wellness. Our goal is to provide you with the best millennial and Gen Z health news you can use. If you like this podcast, follow us on Instagram at HOHThePodcast and give us a rating of five stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Now, without further delay, let's get started. Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of the Heart Over Hype podcast, your one-stop shop for millennial and Gen Z health news you can use. My name is Dr. Shamar Charles, and today I have with me a very special guest, music journalist, cultural critic, and DJ, Kiana Fitzgerald. Kiana is a Texas native, making major moves in the world of music and journalism. Her work can be found everywhere, including Rolling Stone, NPR, Vibe Magazine, Billboard, Paper Magazine, and Texas Monthly, just to name a few. But more importantly, she's all the way awesome and will give us some firsthand insight into the world of mental health as a bipolar schizophrenic, but let's not forget, uber successful music journalist. Thanks for joining us, Kiana. Thank you for having me. So just a little background, I came across Kiana's story reading a publication called AWOL. She penned an article titled 10 Career Lessons from a Bipolar Schizophrenic Music Journalist. Uh, by the way, I suggest that you all read it. It's absolutely fascinating. Not only did you so pointedly st- destigmatize mental illness, but you owned your truth in the most powerful of ways by sparing us no details and sharing with the world your completely unadulterated version of your story, of your truth. It's a really powerful perspective that we don't often get to see, but um, there's no sense in hearing from me. I'll let you tell your story. So I'll kind of start with that AWOL piece that came about when I was hospitalized for the, who, let me count it down, the third time um, since I was, since I had my first episode in 2016. And I was initially diagnosed as bipolar. And then I started to get into some other territories. And the people at the certain clinic that I was in were like, okay, you know, there are some paranoid schizophrenia happening here. And I um, was just like kind of roaring about just, you know, doing whatever people do whenever they have manic episodes. And I ended up uh, breaking a toilet, Um, just like completely shattered the toilet and it just crumbled to the ground. And at that point, that's when they couldn't handle me in that certain facility anymore. So they transported me to a a hospital in Austin and um, I'm based in Texas, so that's kind of where I am now and how I'm dealing with my current condition. But my story stretches back, as I said, to 2016, where I was living in New York City and I was freelancing for the first time and I was in love and I was very stressed out because I felt like I was falling out of love while also having to move out of my apartment while also having to juggle bills and rent. So I was just incredibly stressed and I know that stress is a major trigger for me for my episodes and that launched me into a whirlwind of just manic thoughts and everything that comes with um, you know bipolar the grandiose 
delusions, the um, feeling like you're like you're spiritually connected to something, feeling like um, just essentially everything that is uh, that you could Google on, you know, uh, bipolar disorder. That's kind of what was happening with me. It was everything on that list. So um, ever since then, I've kind of been trying to manage my life and trying to make sure that I'm taking care of myself as best as I can. I don't always do that successfully, but when I do, I want to reach out and help people like I did with this AWOL piece in which I listed some of the lessons that I had learned. That's fascinating. How do you manage your two diagnoses, your bipolar type one and your schizophrenia as a double diagnosis? Yeah, and I want to clarify. So since that diagnosis, I was hospitalized again last October for a, um, a psychosis episode uh, combined with my bipolar disorder. And um, the doctor, the psychiatrist that I spoke with said that she didn't think that I was schizophrenic. She just thought that I was bipolar with psychosis. So I, I kind of carry both of those flags just because it doesn't harm me any. If anything, it helps me to kind of help other people to break out of their shells. But for me, I manage my um, diagnoses with medication first and foremost. I take, I'm not ashamed to say it, I take um, Abilify and Lithium every single day and it um, helps to stabilize me and it helps me to keep my mood in order. And I also have a therapy session every week and I check in with my psychiatrist every other month just to make sure my meds are okay. And yeah, I for I've been um, stable for the past eight months, which is way better than last year, which is when I had two episodes within a six month span. So um, I'm doing much better and I'm learning how to just take it day by day. When you're having an episode, what are you experiencing? What does it feel like? Like, could you walk us through maybe the worst experience you ever had and what that looked like to you from your perspective? Ooh. So the worst episode that I had, um, I think it's a toss up between my first one and my most recent one. So my first episode was, you know, nobody saw it coming. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Um, it was just kind of like, what's going on with Kiana? Like she's talking about God a lot. She's talking about biblical things and she's talking about her spirituality and, you know, she doesn't sound like herself. So it started out like that. And then it just kind of became this bigger thing where I felt like I was a savior sent to like save the world. And by that, I mean, you know, I was racing against time, trying to like connect with the person that I was dating at the time so we could save people. I was knocking on doors. I was um, trying to walk through walls. It was, uh, I just wasn't present on earth. And um, I was manic for about six to seven weeks. And I was hospitalized for five of those weeks but my family came and got me from New York and brought me home to Texas. So um, yeah, that one, that one was pretty bad just because I, I just didn't understand that I was still on earth. I thought that I had ascended to some other place and I thought that I was helping people to, to connect to God. And that, you know, may be the case for me on a day-to-day -day basis in my faith. But for me in that respect, it was very much like, I was not here. Was that a scary time for you? Were you relieved to have a diagnosis? Like what were your feelings like before, during and and after your episode? I did not get a concrete diagnosis until the following year, 2017. 
So for about a year, I didn't know really what was going on. I just knew that I was given some medication. My family wasn't told what was wrong with me or what they assumed to be wrong with me or what they assumed to be up with me, not wrong. There's nothing wrong with me. Um, you know, so I kind of took it as, all right, that was an isolated incident. You know, I don't really know what that could have been, but oh, well, it happened. Let's move past it. And I stopped taking the meds that they had given me because, you know, as a family, my family has a history of like, just miseducation around medication, I would say. So um, I was just kind of like, eh, I don't need them. And then um, the following year, around the same time, October, as the first episode, which happened in October 2016, in 2017, I had another episode and that's when I was hospitalized again. And they sat me down and they said, you are bipolar type one and you need to take this medication. So once I hit that point, that's when it was like, oh, okay. Like now I understand what's going on. So when you were having your manic episode, were you aware of the actual episode? Were you engaging in any destructive behavior or do you kind of black out and then become more aware of what has happened after the fact? Mm, That's a great question. So sometimes, and especially in the beginning, I would say I wasn't aware of the things that I was doing and how it was affecting the people around me. And by that, I mean, I would like hop on Twitter and just like say a bunch of random stuff. And people would be like, what's what's Keanu talking about? So it was destructive in the sense that I was damaging my credibility as a journalist, as a person that people see as quote unquote stable. Um, you know, it was just kind of um, a situation in which I was destroying my own reputation. And thankfully I came out of that um, and explained, uh, and I'll kind of backtrack a little bit when I had my first episode, I went missing, quote unquote, for 36 hours. And I was actually in the hospital, but my family didn't know that I had been picked up by an ambulance and transported to the hospital. So they were just kind of in a frantic frenzy for about 36 hours. So ever since that point, everybody's kind of known that something is up with me. And I've been open since then. I've written about this extensively because it's just public now. So I'm like, oh, well, let's just ride it till the wheels fall off. Word, you might as well, right? Before the show, we discussed how your manic episodes were kind of public. People saw the erratic behavior in person and on Twitter, but a lot of the work to get your life back on track has been done behind the scenes. And you acknowledge that sources of social support and space have been so important in dealing with your mental illness. But I think about people like Kanye, who don't seem to have that luxury despite having all the money in the world, more money than we could ever imagine. From my bird's eye view, it seems like they shove a camera in his face every time he exhibits erratic behavior or acts in a way that's unfamiliar to us. Then we hypothesize that he's either off his meds or having a manic episode, which he may be. That very well might be the case, but we may also be feeding into stigma. As a music journalist, what are your thoughts on how Kanye has been treated in the media And have you ever dealt with stigma in your own life? Yeah. So for me, I'm, I'm experiencing this in real time. So it's hard for me to say on a day-to-day basis, like we're doing great or we're doing poorly. You know, it's like we, some days people are, are compassionate towards a figure like Kanye, who 
could or could not be in the midst of a manic episode. We don't know that. He hasn't come out and said that. Nobody in his family or his doctors, nobody has said that explicitly. We're just assuming at this point. So um, that said, I do feel like figures such as him, such as myself, even though I'm not a public figure, I am someone who is generally speaking to and engaging with the public. I am personally granted with a certain sense of compassion and grace and understanding whenever I go through my episodes. Um, because I still, when I have them, I still hop on Twitter and people are just like, oh, Kiana's manic again. And nobody's like, put a mic in front of her. You know, nobody's like trying to like exploit me for whatever reason. So when I see something like Kanye going through a, a moment of vulnerability and people are, you know, printing up stories about his four hour long rants that, you know, makes sense in the context of Kanye because he's Kanye and that's kind of what he does, but also not taking it into account that he does have bipolar disorder and sometimes he does quote unquote ramp up in his own words. So when he gets ramped up and we're still like, hey, let's talk talk about him as if he's a, not a normal person, but a, a person who doesn't have a mental illness, then that's kind of where things get hairy. And that's where I want to have discussions like this where I say, where I raise my hand and I say, hey, you know, like as someone who is living with this condition, it is kind of triggering to me to see the way that you all are interacting and engaging with him and how you treat me and how there's a vast difference between the two. You bring up some great point. I think it's easy for people to conflate human error with mental illness, especially when you're in the perceived dominant group that doesn't have an identifiable mental illness. I personally think that we live on a spectrum and that we all have something. It's just that some of us have a name for it and others don't. Have you ever felt otherized by people who didn't suffer from a mental health disorder? I am very fortunate that off the top of my head, I can't think of a situation in which I was made to feel like there was something wrong with me or like I was someone who didn't deserve the same treatment as a a person without a diagnosis. But I will say that, um, you know, people kind of dance around it. People aren't exactly open to discussing my condition unless I write about it explicitly or unless I start the conversation off. People kind of tiptoe around it. They kind of pretend like nothing ever happened. And I'm just like, hey, you know, this is a part of my life now. It, I have to take meds every day for it. I have a therapy session every week for it. And this is something that greatly affects my day-to-day -day life. So I don't want people to feel like they, they don't have to acknowledge it. I want them to, to, to see it for what it is. You mentioned earlier that you were diagnosed with bipolar type 1 in 2017 after having an episode in 2016. Do you think that it's possible that you were suffering from these symptoms even earlier in your life? You know, my sister um, has mentioned a couple of times, like, you know, when such and such happened, I think you might have been having a manic episode. And I, I think about it and I'm like, hmm, perhaps. But nothing strikes me um, like to the extent of the episodes that I've had. I might have been hypomanic and just been really excitable and really risky with my behaviors or my habits. But there there isn't like a situation in which I remember like just flat out being manic or flat out being um, erratic or something like that. I will say 
I was um, hospitalized when I was eight years old um, for a psychotic episode. And I don't remember if I was diagnosed with the disorder at that point, but I was hospitalized when I was around eight. So full disclosure, I'm not a mental health clinician, but I think that's something we hear commonly. Mental health manifests differently for everyone. And so not surprisingly, the time frame in which it's identified is also unique. It's also important for people to know that a condition like bipolar disorder may look completely different from one day to the next. It may look completely different than even what we imagine. One day, it may be depressive episodes with lots of sleep, fatigue, and a lack of interest in uh, even participating in fun activities that you enjoyed the day prior. But another day, it may look like erratic speech and engaging in high-risk sexual practice. So it just looks different from day to day. Kiana, can you put on your Dr. Kiana hat and explain in your own terms the difference between type 1 and type 2 bipolar disorder? So there is bipolar type 1 and type 2. And type 1 is my diagnosis, which is when you kind of skyrocket up into the the ether and you don't really have a bottom. You just kind of keep going up. Um, That's the the heights of the grandiosity, the, the super, super up there mania where people can't really tell you what to do. You feel like you're your own person, you're your own entity, and you are here for a reason that is beyond what any human being could, could acknowledge. So that's the, the, the very extreme end of mania. And that's for type one. For type two, you can be hypomanic, which is where you, um, you can get excitable, you can get erratic, you can um, you know not need a lot of sleep, uh, you can make risky decisions, that kind of thing, but you don't go way, way, way up as as someone with type 1 does. That really sums it up. You may have a future career in medicine after your career in journalism. I mean it. Um, I think anyone listening to this can't help but be inspired. They can't help but be moved. But in the spirit of not authorizing you and not being a hypocrite, we need to have your story become the norm and not the exception. You're just so much more than a diagnosis. So uh, let's segue this interview into something a little bit more fun. You've written for basically every major publication out there. What's your favorite interview? Oh, man. Um, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to tell you two. So um, my favorite for personal reasons is uh, this kid from Florida named Rob Banks. It's the silliest rap name, but you know, that's what they do. He has a dollar sign for the S. So um, he's just very, very charismatic. He's very fun. Um, he has a great voice and he just he's just a ball of energy. So I've been listening to him since he was 17 and he's 25 now and I've kind of seen him grow up. So I was able to interview him when I went to LA earlier this year before COVID happened. I'm very thankful I was able to lock that down. But um, yeah, he's just a very introspective, very smart guy. And I was able to kind of showcase who he is, even though a lot of people may listen to his music and not understand quite what makes him work. So that was one. And then the one that I you know, have pinned at the top of my, my Twitter profile is with Megan Thee Stallion. And you know, this was uh, last, as of the Saturday, it'll be, um, uh, a year that this interview came out. It was a cover story for Paper Magazine. And um, it was my first cover story. And she was at her height of heights. 
and she's still just going up and up and up. But at that time, it was like she was this new hot thing and everybody wanted to talk to and about and with her. And Paper reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to do an interview with her. And I was like, absolutely. So that one was a, a very, very big deal for me. I think she's from Texas, right? Yes, she is. I guess like Meg, we have multiple career aspirations. How did you get into journalism? Oh, man. Oh, so <laughs> this like takes me back. But um, I started out, um, I want to say I was in 10th grade and I had this assignment and it was just like writing headlines for sports stories in my my uh, journalism class. Or it was like, a, it wasn't even a journalism class. It was like a web class where we were just like writing things. And my teacher, Miss Weber, was like, Keanu, you're really good at headlines. You should consider actually writing a full story. And I was like 15 and I was like, sure, like that sounds cool. And I just kind of like took that little nugget and like ran with it. And um, the minute I hit undergrad, I knew that I wanted to study journalism. But by the time I graduated, it was like print journalism is dead. What do we do? What do we do? And um, I was like, well, going into grad school immediately. And that's when I got my degree in new media and mass communication, learned how to code, learned about social media theory, mass media and society, um, Latinos effect on media as well. And I learned a lot in a couple of years. And so immediately after that, I applied for an internship with NPR Music and I was a digital media intern. And from there, I just kind of grind, grinded, ground, whatever. <laughs> I made my way um, to uh, staff writer positions for NPR and for Complex Music. And now I'm freelance writing. I've been doing this for a year and a half as of this month. And I'm very excited to say that I am still working away. Shout out to all the freelancers. It's yes. such a labor <laughs> of love. Even starting up this podcast, uh, it just takes so much work to produce yeah. a really good story. It actually doesn't even matter if only one person listens to it. It just means so much because it's yours mm -hmm. and you created it from the ground up. So definitely shout out to any of the freelancers who uh, might be listening. But you're also a DJ, right? So how did you get into that? And can you just tell us a little bit about what music means to you? Mm. These are great questions. Um, so I got started with DJing, I wanna say this was in 2016, actually shortly before my first episode. And since then I've been like, kind of like tipping up and down and up and down, trying to stay with it as I've been hospitalized and bounced home and gone back to New York and now I'm back in Texas. So it's been, it's been a journey, but I got started um, a few years ago and it was just something that I had always wanted to do. Um, and chiefly because I had been to enough concerts and events where I heard terrible DJ transitions. And I was like, I could do this better than them. Like, I know I could do this. So um, I was like, let me just give it a shot. And my first, I, um, I started out with this um, radio network called Wax FM. And my first couple of shows were pretty rocky, but um, the more that I learned and the more that I practiced, the better I got. And from there, I ended up, you know, landing some gigs um, and in New York, which was really, really fun. And yeah, so as far as overlap between my writing and my DJing, um, they really inform one another. Um, they, I can't really listen to music without thinking about what I would want to write about an artist. And I can't really write about an artist without thinking about how I want to hear them in a mix. 
So um, they really balance each other very well. And um, in music, generally speaking, it just is the love of my life. It's something that has kept me going from the day I was born. My mom, she passed in 2009, but she would always tell this story about me singing Betty Wright's song. Um, gosh, what is it called? Um, uh, I can't get it. Um, I'll, this is going to kill me, but I would sing a certain line in that song and I would say, you know, can't nobody do it like I do. And I'm going to regret singing that. But um, <laughs> that song was uh, since I, I was an infant and I would stand up in my crib and I would sing that at the top of my lungs. And my sister would sing the accompanying part. And she's a year older than me. So we were like super young and we would just... Um, we would just sing and rap and just do all kinds of things together. We never wanted to be artists. We just knew that we appreciated music. So ever since I was young, it's just been a part of my life. And now that I'm actually writing about it and getting to DJ and make mixes and make people happy, um, it's just an absolute blessing that I never saw coming. Clearly you're a rock star. You're musically inclined. You're such a great writer. <laughs> Can you just leave us with some positive words um, to anyone who's listening who may be a little bit averse to getting professional help if they have a potential mental health disorder or someone who has been recently diagnosed and, um, are you know, it's rocked them and they're shaken to their core. Can you just give them some uh, words of advice? I would say, and this is going to come in everyone's own distinct amount of time, but don't be afraid to lean into the diagnosis. This is something that has changed my life forever. And initially I was like, I don't know how I'm gonna live with this. I don't know how I'm gonna do this. And then I just kind of started to break out of my shell and say, you know what, let me ask around. Let me see who else is living with this. Let me see what artists are living with this, what rappers, what, what movie stars. And the more that I learned about it, the more I was like, oh, I'm not alone. And not only am I not alone, there are some really incredible people out there that are doing incredible things and they're not letting their diagnoses stop them. So I just kind of took that and used it as my power and said, you know what, I'm going to do everything that I can to empower other people, especially people who feel voiceless and people who feel alone. I felt so alone in the beginning. And now that I've opened up as much as I have, I feel like I couldn't be more empowered. I feel like you just answered my final question, but I'm going to ask it again. So please indulge me. Do you feel like your diagnosis is more gift or more curse? Mm, the ultimate question. Um, I personally see it as a gift. And that's not to say that people who don't have diagnoses aren't gifted. I just see it as something that makes me extremely empathetic and extremely in tune with people and their emotions and their, their, their moods. Um, as someone who has gigantic mood swings, um, I can better understand other people who are going through similar things. And I feel like it's, it's informed so many elements, so many levels of how I operate and how I think and how I engage with music, with my loved ones, with people that I've never met before. Um, you know, it just, it's kind of become the thing that I that I say first in a conversation. I'm like, hi, I'm, I'm Kiana and I live with bipolar disorder. And then that kind of opens the door. Someone will be like, oh, I know someone who has that too. And they're the most important person in my life. And then we kind of are able to have a jumping off point from there. 
or they say, tell me more. And I tell them more and then they come off more, um, more educated. So I just see it as a gift. I saw it as a curse once upon a time, but that was when I just was in the darkest depression and I didn't know how to get out of it. And I thought I was going to be there forever. So to anybody that thinks that they're going to be stuck in a depression forever, you won't be, you will come out of it and you'll come out of it, come out of it on the other side, much stronger and much more wise. True words have never been spoken. Leaning in, that just seems like that <laughs> is the most appropriate motto of 2020. But before we let you go, we just want to play a quick game of mm. myth busting because I think it's really important that our guests debunk some myths mm. for our viewers who are listening. So the way this works is I'm going to basically throw shit against the okay, wall and you debunk it for me. So, number one, anyone who has some type of musical genius also suffers from some mental health illness. Hmm. Hmm. Well, okay. Okay. So, I'm just going to throw Beyonce out there. I don't think Beyonce has a mental illness. I think that in her sister Solange, Solange and Beyonce make music especially as of late, that is very ethereal, very reflective, and seems like it's tapping into some otherworldly stuff. I don't think that they're mentally ill. I think that there are certain elements of the spectrum of mental illness that anybody, as we were saying before, can kind of fall on. So I don't want to come out and say like, yeah, you know, Beyonce is a genius and she's she's crazy. But like, I think that there is a little bit of something that every artist taps into that the quote unquote average person might not be accessing. Okay, I hear you. Well said, well said. Number two, and we're going to get a little bit harder. So drug, sex, and rock and roll is a term we've all heard of. It seems like some artists, whether by substance use or ramping up uh-huh. in their psyche, as Kanye would put it, attribute their creativity to reaching some alternate state of consciousness. So my question mm-hmm. to you is, do you think taking medication, AKA going calm, yay, curbs your creativity? Big no, big old no. Um, I say that as someone who has been through the mud of experimenting with all kinds of medication regimens and combinations and experiments. Um, I just, I've been through it and I know how it can feel when you're on the wrong combination. So I don't want people to feel like, oh, I I can't take these meds because I'll never be creative again. I've been on meds consistently for, you know, I will say off and on for the past four years, but definitely for the past eight months. And I've never been busier. I've never been more creative and I've never been more successful. So um, I'll just put that out there and say, you don't need to just you know, eschew them and say, I don't want to take this because it's going to mess me up. I definitely encourage everybody to to try to find your right, your right mix. Definitely. I, I hope people are writing this down. Okay. Last one. Not sure that uh, this is myth busting, but we're just going to throw shit on a wall and see what sticks. I tell all my friends and family that money or lack of insurance isn't an excuse not to handle your stuff. What are your thoughts on that? And can you provide any resources for those Mm. who lack resources but are interested in getting professional help? Yeah, so there is um, an organization called Rise Above the Disorder, aka RAD, and they provide mental health services on behalf of their clients for free. 
So that's a resource that you can go to. There is Open Path Collective, which is a sliding scale um, therapy session um, system that you can kind of access and you can pay from like, I want to say it's from 30 to 50 or 60 bucks a session, which is like incredible compared to the 150 to 250 per session um, rates that typically fly for therapy sessions. There are so many things, there are so many resources. There's Headspace, which is a, a meditation app. There's, there are so many things out there on the internet. Just get on the internet and type, you know, free mental health programs or free mental health resources and something is gonna come up. I am someone who has not always had the wherewithal to dig into resources such as this. And I haven't always been on top of my game and that's why I have been hospitalized four times now and long term anyway. So um, yeah, I just encourage people to to give it an honest shot. Thank you so much, Kiana, for your candor. You are certainly welcome back and welcome to the Heart Over Hive family. Where can people find your work? Thank you for asking. Um, you can find my work on my website. It is kianafitz.com. That's K-I-A-N-A-F-I-T-Z.com. And I also have a Patreon, which is where I'm writing new exclusive content. And that's patreon.com backslash Kianafitz. Thank you again, Kiana. Please, everyone, like and share her material. It's certainly powerful and definitely fascinating. If you like this episode, please give us a rating of five stars wherever you listen to your podcast. And please follow us on Instagram at HOH the podcast. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to have another conversation with y'all. See you next week. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.